This message by Jeff Hodgson was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jeff serves as a pastor and bivocational elder at Cornerstone Church. Each year in Advent, I don my blue sweater that my little English nana knitted for me some 30-something years ago and enjoy the privilege of preaching God's Word to the people that I love. I have been looking forward to this And I trust that the Lord is going to bless us once again, as he has done throughout this Advent season. We're going to be looking at some verses from Micah 5 today. So let me give you a little bit of time to find that. Uh, It might be easiest to go to the end of the Old Testament and work backwards. Or just look up the page number in your index. And while you're finding that, I want to answer this question. You may be asking, why would we look at Micah during Advent? Well, there's a couple of reasons that we want to do that. First, because we agree with the gospel writer Matthew, who referenced Micah 5 in his gospel and argued that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem ratified his credentials as the Messiah. Matthew wanted to show that Jesus was the promised one who would shepherd God's people. And Micah says, through his prophecy, that he would come from Bethlehem. So we have very good reason to sing O little town of Bethlehem, right? But there's more, much more to this prophecy in Micah 5. Micah 5 is a rescue story. It's a story about God's people facing trial, God's compassion toward them, and His solution to their problem is to send His very own champion. Now, we love rescue stories, don't we? There's something just ingrained in our humanity that makes a rescue story just resonate with us. So many of our popular movies and books have rescue as a major theme. My favorite war movie, Dunkirk, deals with an incredibly dramatic rescue. Writing of the situation faced by the British troops, the Tommies, in 1940, William Manchester vividly portrays the desperate scene. He writes, Now the 220,000 Tommies at Dunkirk, Britain's only hope, seemed doomed. On the Flanders beaches, they stood around in angular existential attitudes like dim purgatorial souls awaiting disposition. There appeared to be no way to bring more than a handful of them home. The Royal Navy's vessels were inadequate. King George VI had been told that they would be lucky to save 17,000. The House of Commons was warned to prepare for very hard and heavy tidings. Then from the streams and estuaries of Kent and Dover, a strange fleet appeared. Trawlers and tugs, scows and fishing sloops, lifeboats and pleasure craft, smacks and coasters, 
the island fairy Gracie Fields, Tom Sopwith's America's Cup Challenger Endeavor, even the London Fire Brigade's Fire Float, Massey Shaw, all of them manned by civilian volunteers. English fathers sailing to rescue England's exhausted and bleeding sons. Now I've heard that introduction to Manchester's biography of William Churchill as the best historical biography ever written, and I, I would have to agree. It gets me every time. Because rescue missions are gripping and fascinating and scary. The human drama of a rescue, especially in a life or death situation, grabs our hearts and makes our minds race. What were those poor people thinking? How did they feel? They must have been terrified. To be in the position of having to be rescued is indeed terrifying. And it requires no small effort on the part of rescuers to save your desperate self. It's dangerous for you and it can cost them dearly. I saw a couple of weeks ago that a rescue helicopter crashed in the Alps in challenging weather conditions, tragically costing the lives of five rescuers. Now most of us won't ever be put in a position of needing mountain rescue teams to helicopter us off the, the ski slopes or, or to pluck us out of the ocean adrift after capsizing in rough seas or, or pulling us off the beach as the enemy approaches. But these rescues, nevertheless, capture our imagination because they speak to something fundamentally true about us. We were born into a desperate situation that required our rescue. We could not save ourselves, and we were headed for ruin. Do we see our lives that way? Micah prophesied around 700 B.C. to a desperate people about the rescue that they needed, which only God would be able to provide. It was specific and appropriate to them, but its overarching truth is applicable to us. And I think the main point for us today from the first five verses of Micah 5 is this. God's promised champion is our peace. So let's pray that the Lord would have mercy to speak to us through His Spirit, that we would have ears to hear God's gracious Word. Gracious God, thank You for this morning. Thank You for upholding creation that we might gather together, that we might sit under Your revealed Word to hear You to experience your character revealed again and to be changed. Speak to us 
O gracious God, show us your champion and show us your peace. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. All right, our first first point this morning, first thing we want to look at today, I'm calling God's people have real troubles. And it deals with verse 1 of Micah 5. We're going to work sequentially through these first five verses of chapter 5, so we'll begin at the beginning. Micah writes, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. All right. Trouble is brewing for Jerusalem. The Assyrians are laying siege to them, and they are bringing an existential threat. They could be destroyed. And they are also bringing shame upon Jerusalem. And so the Lord, through Micah, calls them to action. Gather together all your resources, he tells them. Take up your responsibility and do what is rational and responsible. Get your best and brightest counselors to come up with a plan. The city is a city of troops, so gather your troops. This is not a people without God-given resources. They should be both thankful for them and to utilize them for their intended purpose. When trouble comes, we don't sit passively by, but we look around to see what the Lord has provided that could be a help, even as we seek his further help. And so we're right to avail ourselves of modern medicine. Sometimes that's exactly how the Lord intends to display his mercy. Now, we don't place our faith entirely in these things, but neither do we refuse them in an attempt to be super spiritual. In the threats that we face today, and we certainly do face threats today, don't we want to bring to bear every resource we can against them? And it is not just viruses that we have to contend with. The truth is we have much more serious enemies aligned against us than a virus. We have enemies of our very souls. And historically, the church has identified these enemies as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we must contend against those. So the world. The fallen world means a culture that is aligned against God and his kingdom. Now there is there a season really where we see the stark difference between how the world views something and the way the Lord views something than here at Christmas time. You know it's it's funny I think uh, that, that we Christians can sometimes uh, 
take offense that the world says things during this season like happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Removing the, the reference to Christ. But you know, when you look at how the world kind of does its December celebrations, there's an awful lot that doesn't really resemble much of how God sees things. There's an awful lot of ugly materialism and man-centeredness and so forth. And so I'm not sure I even want them to call that Christ anything, let alone Christmas. Let's let Christmas be a Christ thing and let anything else go by a different name. Maybe they can call it Festivus or something. (laughs) Airing of grievances, feats of strength, all of that. And while they celebrate Festivus, Let's go out and win them over to the real thing. Look, the world is aligned against us. We are under siege. And that's one enemy. Second, our our fallen flesh refers to the sin residing within our hearts that is opposed to the things of God. Before we were saved... And given a new heart that's actually open to the Lord in his ways, we were unable to please the Lord in any way. The church father, Augustine, explained that original sin meant that we were born not able not to sin. In other words, sin affected our very origin of our being. So thank God for his mercy in saving us and giving us a new heart. But even after being born again, sadly, some of that old sin nature still remains in our hearts. Even with a new heart, believers, while able not to sin, can and still do, don't we? Now one day we will be not able to sin. But for now, we have an enemy within us waiting to pounce on every temptation that comes our way. Our flesh is aligned against us. We are under siege. That's the second enemy. And third, there is a devil. Who is it that whispers in our ears that what the world is enticing us with could actually be good for us. That it'll be okay. Who is it that argues that the insanity of sin is actually sane? Who is it that always seems to be trying to undermine our faith that calls into question whether we're even saved calls into question whether God is trustworthy and faithful, that slanders the church and magnifies the challenges of relationship to try to make them seem unworkable. Who is saying that stuff? 
You know, when we, when we sit down together with a cup of tea and in a nice comfortable chair, we all agree with the Lord about how He sees these things. We can take our thoughts captive. But then in the heat of battle, the fog of war, when we're tired or sick, that little voice chirps on your shoulder when you're most vulnerable. Oh, what, what wickedness. The devil is aligned against us. We are under siege by all of these historical enemies. Enemies of our souls who would destroy us. And even if they can't destroy us, they try to make us ineffective by shaming us. So you recall in verse 1 it says, the judge of Israel will be struck on the cheek. That's a shameful thing. Leaders like the judges and kings of Israel or Queen Elizabeth today are not just individuals who happen to hold particular jobs of authority. Most significantly, they exist as representatives. The queen represents Britain. So if someone were to slap her on the cheek, that blow would be disrespectful not only to the queen, but to all of Britain, the entire nation. When people argue that burning a flag is nothing more than an expression of freedom of speech, they fail to understand the representative nature of such an act. That flag represents all of us. Burning it doesn't destroy us, but it casts scorn on all of us. And so our enemies don't just want to hurt us, they want to shame us. They mock our beliefs and our desire to do things God's way. Biblical institutions and ethics and practices are now accused of being the things that are immoral and part of a, a systemic wrong. Human life begins the moment God starts to knit you together in your mother's womb. Marriage as between a man and a woman. Husbands as head of a marriage unit. Fathers as head of a family. Are you kidding? Shame on you for your outdated and hateful ways. They say to us. They seek to shame us. We have enemies. They are numerous and they are cruel and we are under siege. So in this Advent season, we are people who are awaiting a final rescue from our enemies. Oh, Lord, come quickly. And aren't you eager to hear that the Lord has something to say about our rescue? Well, me too. So here we have a transition from the problems we face to the reasons why we should have hope. Here the Lord begins to show what grace He has for His people under siege, the rescue 
we are waiting for. Let's move on to verses 2 and 3. The Lord has a great plan. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. These verses are loaded with grace. The first grace we notice is a reminder that all we have known about the Lord and His ways is still true. Here's what he says. The Lord is going to bring forth a solution from a particular intentional place a little town down the road from Jerusalem, Bethlehem. One of, one of the great gems of the Bible is the name of this town. Uh, the name of the town itself, Bethlehem, means house of bread. So, of course, it would be the birthplace of the one who would be known as the bread of life. Oh, the Bible is so great. <laughs> it's stuff like that. They just, ah, give me more of this. The Bible is awesome. But beyond its fabulous name, Bethlehem has a rich, rich biblical history. In the wonderful story of Ruth and Boaz, a story of mercy and grace that begins and ends in Bethlehem, the Lord shows his heart for even those like Ruth who were not ethnic Jews. The grace of God would go forth beyond the Jews and the redemption of God would go forth through that ever-expanding reach. And of course, Ruth happens to be King David's great-grandmother. So speaking of King David, Israel's poet king and leading man of the nation's heroic history, he called Bethlehem his hometown. No human figure represented the presence and steadfastness of God and future hope of Israel more than David did. So building upon the rich history of Bethlehem, God reveals that it is from there that he will raise up a leader, a ruler, a savior. The Lord says, I've acted powerfully in and through this little town. And so Bethlehem, therefore, will represent for God his steadfast reliability the truth of God does not change. The second grace we notice about Bethlehem is a reminder that God's salvation is not dependent upon that which 
which we would count as impressive. It won't take a cosmopolitan elite, highly educated, militarily experienced man from the big city to bring about God's good purposes. God's salvation, God's plan, is dependent upon God's grace, and he bestows that where he pleases and upon whom he pleases. And so Bethlehem represents God's steadfast reliability, and it also represents God's sovereignty on display. Okay, more grace. He, this ruler, may not come with great fanfare, but here's what God says. He will come. He shall come forth, says God. Now, what does it mean to us that God declares that something will occur? Could there be any more compelling thing than God having said it? What else has the power to move something from the theoretically possible to the solidly sure? We say with certainty that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning. Why? Because we've seen it so many times, and there's nothing out there saying that things are going to change. So we hold that to be something that we can bank on. Are we spending enough time remembering what God has done in our lives and having that fix our confidence in the trustworthiness of his promises? Are we thinking on what God has done before we concern ourselves about what might happen next. God's declaration carries with it God's trustworthiness. He says it, and he does it. His plan is marked by his steadfastness, his sovereignty, his trustworthiness. And here's what his plan is. He is going to bring forth a champion. Now, verse 3 is a sober reminder, however, that the ultimate triumph of God and his champion is not an immediate one. God's people, since the fall in the garden, have been a people who have been waiting for an ultimate salvation. We are called to trust God as he continues to work out his redemptive history. Which will mean things like more souls are going to be added to the happy throng of God's people. And that's a worthwhile thing for which to endure the present, isn't it? How good to think that God is adding more. In this Advent, we are awaiting the Lord's champion to come one final time. So as we wait, let's seek to be a part of what God is doing. Let's seek to be a part of God bringing more souls into this happy company. Now, I want to think more about this champion who is to come 
And Micah talks about him more. So we're going to go back and read verse 2 again. And then we're going to go and skip over to verses 4 and 5. This is the third thing we're going to consider. God's people have real troubles, real trials. God has a great plan. And so now, therefore, we have a great champion. Again from verse 2. From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And now verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. First, not only will this promised ruler make his appearance, he will do so for a particular purpose. A purpose dedicated entirely to God's desire. He will act according to God's will and design. What comes about through his ministry is what God wants to happen. He shall come forth for me, says the Lord. Now, does it make a difference to know that it's God's purposes exclusively that are being served by his coming? It makes all the difference. Because we know about God's character. He's revealed it time and time and time again. We know of his perfect wisdom, power, and love. It gives us great comfort to know that he's in charge and that it's his plan being worked out. And if we think that way, it allows us to then look at our own lives through a different lens, a different perspective. Here's a natural thing to do and a thing that Christians always, or not always, but often make the mistake of doing. We can look first at our circumstances, interpret them ourselves, and then come to conclusions about God's character. My life is hard and unfair. So God somehow doesn't love me. My life is hard and unfair. Therefore, God is a little hard and unfair. No, don't get that backwards. Look at God's character first. What do we know is true about God's character? Everything that we need for life and godliness, he has given us. Everything we need to know in this life about God and his character, he has given us. Do we have exhaustive knowledge of the Lord? No, but we have enough. We have what he says we need, and it's a lot. Let's look at his character first. And when we consider his character, then we can go back and interpret our lives. 
we can see that this good and loving and merciful and wise and powerful God is working all things for our benefit. And so now I look at the hard things in my life and I say, how is it that this good and wonderful God is working this out? What can you show me, Lord, about these things? I start with this character and then I interpret my life. I don't start with my life and interpret his character. So the promised ruler is going to come and he is going to act for God's purposes. Well, is there more? Yes, there is. Verse 2 also tells us he will be a ruler. And that means he has power at his disposal. It's one thing to have a desire for something. It's entirely different to be able to bring it to pass. And this one can. And then this is beautiful. We learn that he will be in Israel. He's not going to exercise this power from afar. He will be with the people he's coming to save. The greatest desire of God's people has always been that God would be present with us. The wonder and comfort of Emmanuel, God with us, has never failed to serve God's people. And when he comes, we are going to recognize him. Isn't it great to run across someone you recognize? Now, maybe if you're like me, you have that moment of terror when you are afraid you're not going to remember their name. But there's still something so good about the connection you feel in recognizing an old familiar acquaintance. When God's promised one comes, you're going to recognize him. There will be no doubt or hesitation. We're going to see things about him that we will immediately recognize. We've seen evidence about him all our lives. He's been foretold and described. For as long as we've heard about what God's saving work is like, that's what he is like. But notice that Micah doesn't merely say that the description of the one is from old. So it's not a new guy on the scene that has these kind of old school qualities about him. No, he is from old. And that is important. It means he is divine. Just as Isaiah also said of him. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He is the real deal. There is no one else like him, and we are going to know him when we see him. This one who is to come will be great. And here's what he's going to do. He will do the Lord's bidding, and while he doesn't promise to immediately fix all 
the problems that we face, the promise remains that ultimately He will. There will continue to be trials that God's people endure. And we shouldn't expect that God's purposes involve immediately relieving us of our suffering. At times He does, and we give thanks to God for His mercy in those times. But at other times, the trials continue. And we may not necessarily know why at the time. Job didn't exactly know why he was suffering, nor do we. Sometimes the cancer continues. Sometimes the virus persists. Sometimes the employment doesn't come. Sometimes the relationship continues to be difficult. Sometimes the sin pattern frustratingly keeps cropping up. However, the trial, the suffering will not continue forever for God's people. Regardless of how persistent our trials presently are, we know this. They will end. Relief will come. And to know that helps us. It helps us to persevere. These trials still hurt, but knowing that it's not forever gives us something else to think on. It gives us opportunity to imagine how things would be if God's grace came and affected them. That's what we call hope. If I look at my life and I look at the trial that, I face, that I'm facing, the suffering that I'm enduring, and I imagine, what would this look like if God's grace came and affected this thing? How would things be? And I can imagine what that's like. And I want to live in that. And I want to ask the Lord to please bring that to pass. I want to pray, Lord, bring your grace to bear so that something glorious comes. And then show me how you would have me walk until that day. That's living in hope. And hope will not put you to shame. So in the meantime... While there are multitudes being gathered together, we are going to suffer. We are going to face trials. But one day, we're finally all going to be together. And we're going to find that He is with us. He will stand, and He will reign visibly, and He will rule with God's strength, with God's majesty, with God's character, we will look upon Him with wonder and admiration and love and with all of heaven. Our song will be the Revelation 7 song. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's our song. We're going to sing that with the angels. We will dwell secure. We will experience safety and security like we've never known before. We shall be, he shall be great and we shall see him for who he is. And now, as long as we are looking to him, trusting in him, abiding in him, focusing on him, thinking on him, praying to him, emulating him and worshiping him, we're going to find glimpses of that future glory. We're going to find glimpses of that future peace. It changes us when we worship Him. All will one day be made right. As we grow more and more in our anticipation for that next advent, our perspective on our present trials changes. Micah prophesied about a promised ruler, a champion who would rescue God's people. How good it is to know that the hero of this prophecy, the promised ruler, the promised one, the champion, ultimately is Jesus. He is the hero of this story. He is the hero of every story, all of history. He is the one who has saved his people by his perfect life and perfect sacrifice. By his spirit and grace, he sets us free to receive his glorious gospel and to be changed and to live in hope as we await that final glorious victory. My favorite Advent song is Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And if I make it through reading this, it'll be a miracle. They are great words to hold to now as we await that glorious Revelations 7 song that we are one day going to sing to Him. He's coming again, folks. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God appears on earth to reign. The dear tokens of his passion still his dazzling body bears cause of endless exultation 
to his ransomed worshipers. With what rapture, with what rapture, gaze we on those glorious scars. Yea, amen, let all adore thee high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Everlasting God, come down. Here we are in Advent 2020, facing our trials and awaiting the Lord's glorious return. But we do so knowing the one who has guaranteed our rescue. Jesus is the Lord's promised champion. And we rest in him, trust in him, hope in him, triumph in him. Oh, Christmas is going to be merry indeed. Let's pray. Gracious God, we await you. We await your champion to come again. Thank you. Thank you that you've revealed so much of how you care for us and uphold us and strengthen us as we wait. Fill us with your Spirit, Lord God. Fill us with yourself. Reveal yourself to us that we may be strengthened to stand. And Lord, send us forth to do the work you've called us to do for your glory. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jeff Hodgson during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.